Welcome, everybody, to the Sedge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is Christopher Beige for part two of his remarkable exploration over 20 years into the world of psychedelics and the mind of the universe. We explore the narrative of the path as a journey into progressive opening and the challenges of integrating so much openness in both the body and the mind. How did Chris manage all the energy that was released and avoid the kind of eating disorder, so to speak, of consuming so much experience? Is the process really one of returning to these remarkable states or recognizing them right here and now? And why is death and dying so integral to this journey? How does going through this actually remove one's fear of physical death? Chris then talks about how it's necessary to become one with ourselves in order to become one with the cosmos. We then turn to the profound exploration of the diamond luminosity. What exactly is the light that's revealed with such openness? Where does it go when the absorption states fade? Why does it fade? And how does this light relate to worldly appearances? We then talk about evolution, the future human, and how to reconcile that which does not evolve emptiness or the changeless nature with that which does, which is form. Does the path ever really end? What about the difference between voluntary and involuntary rebirth? How bad is it going to get before it gets better? Chris leaves us with his prescription for a better future in specific ways we can help ourselves in this planet. This is another mind-bending, mind-opening session with a true intrepid explorer of consciousness and a message that we really all need to take to heart. Welcome, everybody, to our ongoing Edge of Mind podcast, where I have the great honor and delight to spend a little bit more time with this remarkable thinker, um, psychonaut, explorer of the mind and heart, um, Christopher Bache, and really continue to unpack, unfold some of the many aspects of his remarkable journey that we introduced in round one of my conversation. And so... Um, I will reiterate a very brief bio of Chris, and then we're just going to jump right in and slowly venture into um, hopefully some rich, deep waters. So uh, Christopher Beige is a professor emeritus in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Youngstown State University, where he taught for 33 years, a fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He is also adjunct faculty at the California Institute of Integral Studies and on the advisory board for Groff Transpersonal Training and the Groff Foundation. An award-winning teacher, international speaker, who's the author of three books and lives in Portland. You're still in Portland, right? Actually, we're in Weaverville, North Carolina now. Just Oh, okay. Well, I'm yeah. glad I asked. Yeah. 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 So, Chris, thank you again for, for taking time to return um, and unfold with me some of the remarkable implications of your, your journey. So at the outset, deep of gratitude for you. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Andrew. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, really, I, I deeply appreciate it. And so what, what I thought what we could explore is I was rereading some of the material, especially the latter chap- uh, chapters in your journey, um, LSD and the Mind of the Universe. That's mostly what we're going to be unfolding, but also conjoined with uh, the living classroom, because there's obviously some wonderful um, interconnectivity between those narratives that will be woven into this. But I thought what we could we could introduce is um, a narrative, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart right now, so much so that I'm writing one book on it and probably two. And I think we pinged on this just a wee bit in the, our first session, but I want to explore it 
in a little bit more detail now because um, to me, I think using your languaging, it, this this narrative of openness and contraction is really I've I've come to see it as kind of the combustion cycle of the spiritual path. And so I thought we could start with that narrative as a way to perhaps like a like a fractal reiterate the entirety of your journey within the session itself. In other words, start mm-hmm. a little bit more with this narrative and maybe continue to expand to open into deeper and deeper dimensions as in fact your journey both during the 20 years and after um took you through as a way to really uh talk both in a kind of philosophical and also, and, and the reason I love these terms, um, somatic sense. I, I love the notion of, of openness and contraction because these are things we can feel. I mean, they're not just cerebral, intellectual storylines. These are things that we can feel in our body-mind matrix. And so um, I, I would like to dive into that with you as we perhaps um, set our direction towards what I consider to be the the climax of your book, the, the diamond luminosity, but because that light is so bright, that space is so open that we perhaps can dilate the aperture of our awareness, our hearts and minds a little bit more slowly and start by, by um, sending a question in your direction about how this, uh, your journey could be articulated in this expression, this kind of pulsation, or, or the Hindus talk about it beautifully in, in the tradition of spanda, the doctrine of vibration, which I'm starting to see now, and, and I'll share some of my own experiences and insights of, of openness mm-hmm. and contraction, openness and then contraction. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could start there, and then that I think sure. will, will lend us um, gradually into wider and wider and, and perhaps yeah. greater degrees of openness, okay? You bet. Well, that's a good place to start. So in my understanding, in my experience, uh, psychedelics in general, and in particular LSD, which was my primary medicine in this journey, is an amplifier of consciousness. And so when consciousness is amplified, uh, signals which are quiet get large, get loud, um, and you have a sensation of your becoming aware of more and more how you meet that increase of awareness, how you engage what emerges is seminal in the process. If you uh, engage the shadow consciously, uh, you confront those things which keep you habitually contracted and small. Uh, You engage those fears or whatever it is. Um, You take them to their source, to the root, Um, they resolve themselves. And when they resolve themselves, your consciousness is free to open into more spacious places. Every time you let go of something which is holding your consciousness in a fixed pattern or holding it small, particularly initially, your your time-space identity, your historical egoic identity, that tells us who we are, but if you can let go of that, you discover that there are these dimensions beyond your time-space identity, which are even more truly, really what you are. And if you keep this going, you go through multiple layers of uh, consciousness. Uh, and there's a point where you have to let go, surrender, or die, not only to your individual identity, but to your identity as a human being per se. There is a deeper sense of humanity 
that defines, that holds the limits of your knowing. And there's a going even deeper, there's a sense of time-space identity. You, you let go of your entire existence, including all your reincarnational experiences of time-space as a framework for holding experience and your experience flows beyond time and space. And this is a, an entirely natural process. I think thought of as a, a broader conjecture, my understanding of what happens inside a psychedelic session is that it basically accelerates and intensifies what is taking place in nature all the time. So when we are born, our consciousness contracts into our an individual egoic time-space identity. When we die, we expand. There's a sense of expanding back into the souls, back, back into deeper spiritual awareness. When we're born, we contract. When we die, we expand. And so what happens in a session, it simply accelerates and intensifies this natural process which is taking place in history over a longer period. So what it allows you to do is to accelerate that process and to start by burning off more karma than one might get around to uh, otherwise. And that's the same thing that happens in meditation, of yeah. course, too. Uh, same dynamic. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? My favorite running definition of, of meditation these days um, is habituation to openness. Mm. Um, and it, I find it, there's so many implications to that, Chris, because I mean, parenthetically, the, the Buddha, we know etymologically usually translated as the awakened one, but I've also heard renderings as the opened one. Mm. And so the, the reason I find this beautiful for a number of reasons is in contradistinction, we're the contracted ones. Yeah. And so by, by bringing this, the reason I think this is so important is because by bringing this process, this phenomenology into the light of our conscious awareness, we can better sensitize ourselves to it in a more um, somatic sense. It's against something, this is something we can feel. This is not just a cerebral intellectual um, thing. We, we can feel this process of contraction and openness within our very soma. And, yeah. and for me, what I'm curious, Chris, is, is two things. One, how early in your journey did this become apparent to you? I mean, how I, I, I can't remember all your sessions with great yeah, specificity, sure. but where did this narrative become identifiable for you? How did it help you as you continue to go further? And then um, parenthetically, just so I don't forget this as well, the other thing I find around this narrative that's so helpful that you were suggesting at the outset is that we're practicing this, whether we know it or not, where we are either on the path of practicing habituation to openness, or if we don't know it, and most of us don't by default, we're practicing contraction. Every time we capitulate to grasping, to beliefs, to a sense of, I mean, virtually everywhere, that is our default contraction. And so, um, again, I know I'm throwing a couple of things out there, yeah. but it, I think this is so foundational for me that after decades, when I look back, it's like, oh my gosh, I can really look with a, a new sense of understanding from this altitude. Wow, my whole journey has been this kind of pulsation, opening, expanding. How much of that can I deal? Then metabolizing, contracting. So a little bit around that, a little bit more on that. Sure. It actually started in the very first session. Mm. In my very first session, I hit an experience where I could not remember 
anything about myself. I could not remember who I was, what I was. I couldn't remember what I did for a living. I could not remember whether I was a man or a woman. I was absolutely jammed. And I looked in a thousand mirrors. I couldn't find any piece of individual egoic identity. Uh, And it was, of course, very jarring, frightening in the beginning. And then later in the session, my sense of identity returned. But it, that experience was really important because it told me, at first it gave me an, an insight into the dynamic, uh, it shook me up, and it showed me a certain measure of the true cost, you know, because I had read about ego death and I thought, oh, good, let's do it. Uh, and I hadn't appreciated that this is a true death. This is a yeah. loss of your identity. Um, and it, it basically um, taught me to the art of letting go. And the art of surrender, because if you can't control your self-identity, and that's about as basic as it gets. Yeah. And so later, when the ante kept increasing, uh, I knew that the key to navigating whatever was coming was to surrender, let it go. And it, it stopped me from trying to hold on to something familiar, hold on something I could identify with. And that just then that just went on. It escalated from there about two and a half years later, when my individual egoic identity was turned inside out and just crushed. Uh, I went through a, a collapse of that smaller state and a rebirth into a, a deeper state. And then later, uh, through after the ocean of suffering, after spending two years in that you know, surrounded by the historical suffering of humanity and these unfinished memories, painful memories, there was a death process which then catapulted me into a deeper level of reality beyond the collective unconscious into archetypal consciousness. And this pattern just kept repeating itself. Uh, so, but it started very early on. And then, then it's just... Uh, The texture of the openness differs, the context differs, the purity of it differs. Uh, There's a lot of light, of course, engaging fields of light, but I found that light itself also uh, has gradients. There are various kind of levels of purity of light, levels of clarity of light. And so the, the actual content of openness is it changes in the work, but the phenomenon that of opening into something larger, something deeper. Now, now I want to caution this a little bit, qualify it. The sensation and the certain stages of work in what I would call the psychic and subtle levels of consciousness, the sensation often is of getting larger. Uh, And I think this is characteristic of subtle level reality, subtle level of states of consciousness. And then later, uh, much later in the journey, uh, this experience was just reversed. That is, I I was experiencing Mm -hmm. huge Mm -hmm. fields of light contracting. Yeah. into the present and just exploding me into that, into some different state of consciousness, but everything was contracting, contracting. So I began to realize that the whole subject, I, I even began to wonder whether we had misidentified oh. the nature of psych, of psychedelics by calling them mind openers. Yeah. I understand, but 
at another level, they are mind, mind contractors mm-hmm. where you're contracting deeper and deeper and deeper into the present, 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 until you drop into a very yeah. different experience of that present. So openness we, we just want to be careful to yep. recognize that there is a there are different modalities of openness. it's a, it's a multi isn't it Chris it, it's a multivalent term right it yeah. has it has um different iterations and contexts and and several things come to mind here that uh, contraction into the present moment is very interesting in the in the languaging that I'm familiar with and you may be familiar with this too Padmasambhava talked about it as the fourth moment which mm-hmm. one can only actually access through the conduit of the present moment. So what an interesting kind of juxtaposition and almost clash of traditional um, approaches where on one level, by contracting in the healthy sense, and again, this is, I think, super important because in in and of itself, contraction is utterly non-problematic. We we couldn't operate in the world without that aspect of that pulsation. And so we tend to clamor towards openness as that somehow being the ultimate spiritual thing. I think provisionally, there's some truth to that. But if we can't merge that openness with our contraction, then contraction becomes the bad boy, the bad girl. And we look at it in in a kind of a a limited way. But in my experience, in Padmasambhava used this language of the fourth moment. You contract, you condense into the portal. It becomes the portico into the timeless beyond where you come to the present moment and then that blows up, so to speak, um, into the fourth moment, which transcends even the present moment itself. And I think that's helpful because we're, we're going to start to tread into waters where language is, well, because it's dualistic and nature becomes problematic. And as you know, in the Buddhist tradition, one has to be or is invited to be incredibly articulate, precise, in order to realize when we use this term, exactly how are we using it in what context. And so yeah. I, I think, therefore, it seems like, well, wait a second, isn't the whole thing about yeah. opening? Well, yes, but it's also honoring the the process of contraction and how that can then lead to this. You know, you're mentioning Padmasambhava gives me an opportunity to once again emphasize the point that uh, there are correlations, and I'm grateful for the correlations between my experiences and those recorded by the great beings, the Padmasambhavas of the world, the great contemplatives, but this path that I was on is not that contemplative path. Mm-hmm. It's a path of temporary immersion. So when I'm describing things, it always has to be understood that this is a temporary experience, mm-hmm. which then to unpack the spiritual potential of that temporary experience, you know, we can have that conversation, but it's it's not the same as when you come into these experiences using what you might think of as the slow bake method of sustained <laughs> contemplation, you know? So I just always want to be careful to keep apples and oranges yeah. separate. And because uh, so many people, good point. They, they think, Oh, I've had a, a tremendous revelatory enlightenment experience. And that's, you know, it says, well, good for you, but, <laughs> but that's, it's that's a temporary experience. That is unbelievably important. I mean, how does the saying go? Uh, uh, um, an enlightened experience does not make one an enlightened being. I mean, that's yeah. as you know, that's a difference in, in Tibetan languaging between experience and realization. By definition, yeah, experience always has a beginning and an end. Yeah, and in order to mature that, and that's very interesting because yeah. that that's a large part of the path where I think a lot of people really get tripped up. I speak from my own experience. You have these. Yeah. tremendous metanoias, these openings, 
you think you're enlightened. And then what do you do? You grasp after that and you just replace a chain made of lead with one made of gold. And so, therefore, understanding that there's there's the path quality of of continuing that. And so just to reinstate a couple of things, when you're talking about deeper states, just to make sure I'm understanding you, Chris, it seems to me that you're also saying a deeper state is is somewhat synonymous with a, with a more open state. That is, you're waking yeah. in, you're also expanding, and then and then perhaps as you pointed out that that it then points or um, directs to us how it is that we're constructing this self sense moment to moment. This is the other thing I think that is incredibly important that we we tend and I'm speaking from like confessional thing. We tend to think that. The ego structure, the self-sense is this monolithic reified entity. And this is where we can learn a lot from our scientific brothers and sisters and science, uh, physics and neuroscience. It's a, it's a process. It's not a product. The self-sense is constantly being constructed. Yeah. And therefore, when you go through this type of deconstruction or demolition derby, by immediate implication, you can see through the process of demolition, the process of construction, and therefore how we are responsible for the way we contract. And we do so largely for purposes of protection, fear, and the like. But is that is that a fair representation of what you discovered? It is. It's it's a fair representation, and it's a way. It's a description which fits better in some ways the early stages of the work where you are still kind of working at. Um, insights which help you understand your individual way of being in the world. Um, And then, you know, I describe my work fundamentally as a work in cosmological exploration, Mm -hmm. where not only do you leave your individual ego behind, you know, at least temporarily, uh, and you leave, but you leave deeper and deeper levels behind, at least in my experience, and are given the opportunity to explore how the universe constructs its reality, mm. how archetypal reality structures time and space reality, how um, oneness manifests in the diversity of all physical, of all life forms, of all atomic, nuclear, quantum life forms, uh, how the pure void of, of emptiness is that mysterious fertile essence which is giving birth to time and space. I mean, the, the vast, you know, the vastness of time and space, moment by moment, minute by minute. So it is, you know, very useful to understand your personal way of contracting, the personal way of, you know, sustaining your smallness. But for me, uh, I mean, I trained as a philosopher, I wanted to understand the larger spectrum of reality. And so, the invitation that that was given to me was just to explore how time and space is made. Uh, And I wish, I mean, I so often wish I had a PhD in physics and astrophysics. I mean, I could have understood so much more of what I was being shown, but, you know, always the universe can only communicate to you successfully that which you have the capacity yes. to understand. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's a, what a fantastic statement, Chris, because to me, it's like, and this is what you suggest towards the end of your book, when you were wrestling, struggling, working with this process of integration, how in a very real way, you using this particular mechanism disintegrated 
opened, opened, opened. And then, and then really in my language in here, um, using frameworks that we're both familiar with, that, that this notion of, uh, in the Indic traditions, this pedagogical approach, I think we might've hit it hit on last session of, of hearing, contemplating, meditating, my languaging, ingest, digest, metabolize. And what the way I read your experience that I think is really worth talking about is that you you open to such an extent, and I can speak a little bit from my own experience, that then the issue became one of, of digestion and metabolism. And, and the reason I mentioned this that I think has tremendous applicability is that sometimes when we look at things like psychosis, and you were treading sometimes that thin membrane between transcendence and, and psychosis, the loss of self-sense, that the, the issue of integration, bringing that in, in a certain way, and, and pardon my kind of play on languaging here, is that um, psychosis can be in fact a type of eating disorder that you actually open to such an extent that then you, you actually don't have the capacity, you don't have the infrastructure, the wherewithal to digest and metabolize. And then instead of opening body-mind, you blow body-mind. And sense of reference yeah. is then completely so decimated that that is one way to perhaps talk about the whole psychotic aspect yeah. of it. And, and the risk, perhaps, some of the perils of doing this type of deep diving. I understand, and you're certainly right, that doing this type of work does carry certain risks and has to be approached cautiously and uh, with careful uh, support structures in place and careful self-monitoring and so on and so forth. I don't think, and I do understand uh, the relationship between psychosis and transcendence. And I think it was at Houston Smith who said, uh, a mystic is someone who learns how to swim in the waters, in the vast waters, and a psychotic drowns. That is actually R.D. Lang. R.D. Lang. R.D. Lang. Okay. Lang. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in my case, I understand the psychotic looking qualities of loss of self, that, but uh, I would not ever, I would not describe my experience as walking that particular edge. And if I had gotten into a situation where I felt I was at that edge, I would have changed course. I would have done something differently. My experience was that by working in a very carefully clinical type modality and opening systematically, uh, the universe really opened me systematically in a way beyond my calculation, but it opened me very, very carefully. Mm. And so it peeled me carefully and it broke me open layer by layer by layer. If it had catapulted me, you know, beyond, beyond, beyond so quickly, then I could have had problems integration. But in my experience, I always uh, opened and I always congealed comfortably and carefully. And if I had not congealed comfortably and carefully, then I would have been given pause because mm -hmm. that's a symptom of something really going wrong. So it's not the depth of loss of self, mm -hmm. which marks the psychotic episode. I think it, it also has to do with a kind of confusion, but I absolutely agree. You have to walk these waters very carefully I seem to have a kind of a natural constitution. I mean, you know, I started this work. I never came from any traumatized background, just the ordinary, you know, pains of growing up and whatnot. But I, I had fundamentally a core strong self. Um, and I also had uh, a capacity 
it's in my natal astrological natal chart, a capacity to open and an interest in opening up into the vast expanse of consciousness and to con contract back. So if, if you don't have that natural capacity, or if you're bringing in disruptive trauma or other qualities in your person, then very much this work may not be for you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a little bit like Jack Engler famously said, and I think it's appropriate statement. You have to be someone be before you can be no one. That's right. There, there, I think that cannot be overstated that there, yeah. the, the ego itself fundamentally is non-problematic. It's a developmental stage. It's just a form of arrested development. Yeah. And so if you don't have that stable self-sense, then in fact, then instead of dis, uh, differentiating, you dissociate. And then that's where it becomes somewhat problematic. Then the ability yeah. to find that identity, to find some refuge becomes really yeah. somewhat disconcerting. But Chris, towards the end of your book, um, I want to come back to this just a little bit, because my understanding of what you're sharing towards the end, like what, what dictated stopping after the 73rd journey was, and I found this one of the most compelling um, pardon the pun, electrifying parts of your book, where it was, it was as if your body-mind matrix had become so open. And we talked about this last time. This is so important. This kind of tantric work, body is as important as mind. When you're opening your mind, you are opening your body. And as you open your body, even the classic inner yogic sense, all these energies, what they talk about is the winds come through. And if those winds aren't ridden properly, they can throw you. And so if I understand what you said towards the end, in a certain way, your system was running too hot. There was so yeah. much energy, so much release that again, this is, this returns us to this digestion and metabolism component. It was like my cup runneth over. I, I have, I have enough experience here to spend the rest of this life or other lives now digesting this feast yeah. And, and so isn't, isn't that a fair way to recapitulate what you said at the end that you stopped the feast because there was just too much to eat, so to speak? <laughs> I think, I think that's a fair description. Um, in my case, I don't, I think it's not because I didn't ride the wind successfully. Mm -hmm. I think I rode the wind successfully, but I rode the winds too long in mm. the sense, I mean, I, they were just, they would stretch me out so, so wide and so deep. Um, and I think this is, um, you know, in the early stages of psychedelic use, both individually, and I think culturally, we get excited by having being able to have contact with the transcendent dimensions. And that's so liberating. And it's so intellectually, you know, opening to us to the intelligence that lives in the universe, that is the universe. Um, but our our tradition is, our theological and even our contemplative traditions, I think, tend to, except at the very highest levels, tend to underestimate the dimensions of the divine or underestimate the dimensions of the universe. So that leads us to underestimate how vast the world is that we can open into. And psychedelics do give us the capacity even when they are used well, and I hope I use them skillfully and responsibly, but even when I did that, uh, it basically opened me so deeply into such intimacy with the universe, transcending time, transcending space. And even though I contracted back, okay, the memory yeah. of the beauty, yeah. the memory of the communion was just so 
dear and so um, intense that uh, I could not I could not take return and coming back. I just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't go to the train station and leave your lover one more time. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I just had to stay here and uh, let her come to me in whatever form was possible by me, not going into a non-ordinary state, but staying here and letting, and just digesting. Like you say, I, I picked up, a lifetime and more of experiences to, to digest. And so let me ask you this, and I hope it's okay if we go in, in, into some, I mean, the, the book itself is so intimate, it's so personal that I don't think I'm violating um, mm. any borders with you. But if, if I go into areas where it's like, yeah, not, I don't want to go there, you will not offend me. Okay. But, but what you said at the end, uh, somewhere towards the end of the book, I was really moved by this because in a certain way, when I look back over my own life, Chris, uh, it became more articulate over the last couple of years. My entire life has been is a way uh, learning how to prepare to die. I mean, I wrote a book by that very title and and in in the most elegant way, that journey has actually brought me more fully into life than I could have imagined. So my passion for death has has actually brought me more fully into life than I could have possibly imagined. And so I have a deep, deep fascination, interest in death, dying, thanatology, to me, really, yeah. the whole spiritual path is death in slow motion, opening, yeah. titrating, opening on our terms. But what you share at the, share at the end, I thought was so beautiful. What, just to expand, we said here that I, in a certain way, I couldn't wait to die, that I, I couldn't wait to return to my beloved. But let me let me ask you this. How do you think, Why? what do you expect will happen? And why do you think somehow you'll be more prepared for her ultimate embrace with the dissolution of your body at the moment of death than you are now? I mean, are you perhaps, again, I don't know, kidding yourself? It's a very open question. What is the intuition or the felt sense that says, I can't wait to dissolve into the embrace of the beloved at the moment of death? And then why why do you think you'd be able to handle that any differently than you can handle it now? I don't think I would handle it differently at the moment of my final death, whenever that takes place, than I could handle it now. I think if I were to die right now, um, the training that I went through in my psychedelic work, uh, and it is just as you say, it it is a training to die. And that training actually becomes a training in how to live because, you know, (laughs) there's like two realities in the world. There's a domain of light. I think of it as just pure light. And then there's the green reality, which is manifest physical world, which is the world of, of, you know, the world that we are part of, nirmanakaya. So there's dharmakaya and nirmanakaya, and they, they are interpenetrating. They are the same reality experienced in different modalities. And what we experience as death is really just a, 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 an intersection, of, a, a moment of intersection between these realities and as you awaken, you don't it, you awaken into a deeper into the fact of the constant intersection, the constant simultaneity of these realities. So, what happens when we die physically, and what happens when we die spiritually, are really deeply one and the same in a way. Um, and I feel like in my sessions. I went through, I was taken into my own death process multiple times. I, I, I can't really count how many times I died. 
And so I have a sense that I know the pathway well. I read the literature about the Bardo confusions that yep. can distract us and prevent us from returning fully to a Dharmakaya when we die. Yep. And I recognize that. And I have, I feel like I've dealt with many of those. And I, I, I may be wrong. You know, we'll find out. Yeah. We'll find out. The final exam, right? <laughs> yeah. But I have a sense that uh, to me, death is, will be uh, not only joyful yeah. as it is for everybody, but easy. Yeah. Uh, because I, I don't feel yeah. a deep clinging to not only my personal identity, but I don't feel a, a deep clinging to human existence or to time space. Um, so, and you're absolutely right, all spiritual practice, and I think of psychedelic practice as I try to do it as a spiritual practice, yeah. you know, a session, I call them sessions, not yeah, beautiful, a session, yeah, a period of spiritual practice. Yeah. Um, they are preparing you for that moment of death. And if everything goes well, yeah. you do get to die before you die. Remember totally. the word, those who die before they die, do not die when they die. Right. So that what would be lovely, if I could experience what I think of as full liberation, would be if she came to me while I was still in yeah. my body and I got to live in the death state yes. while I was alive in the physical state. That's so beautiful. And I, this is so important. This this view alone can irrevocably, radically alter our relationship to the end of life and transitioning. And by the way, we should make a deal with each other, Chris. And when I was reading your book, I thought of the same thing, that both the use of, of the word psychedelic and death, I, I think these are branding issues. We need to rebrand these terms. And so every time I read psychedelic, it was like, I'm pressed by this ridiculous condition button to that word. And yeah. so I'm, I'm talking about playing here, but you should replace every instance of psychedelic with entheogen. Yeah. I should replace in my work of death and dying. I'm really going to actively try to do this because death is such a reified, ridiculous notion. I'm yeah. going to do my best to every time I use that word as mindfulness of speech, replace it with the word transition. Because yeah. otherwise death seems so final. It's so solid. And it's like this terrible monolithic thing. Yeah. But no, it's not. You know, what, know. what did Marie Curie say beautifully? He said, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Yeah. And so what we're doing here is this tremendous understanding. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about this because this is so important for us. Wait, well, let you, me, what, before we go in the next oh, yeah. one, let me just hold, respond to something you said. Okay. One of the things that I, I write about in the book in the Diamond Luminosity chapter is um, once you've died, so many times and at so many levels of consciousness, the very concept of death loses its meaning because yeah. you, you learn you cannot die. Yeah. The form you are can die. Everything about all your understandings and all your history can die, but you cannot yeah. die. Yeah. And, and at that point, you know, in, in that diamond luminosity chapter, when I made my first transition into the diamond luminosity, the name of that chapter I gave that is the death state. And the song which I've sung in that chapter, you know, my, my, if you, what we would usually call the, the song of realization was the death state, you know, and it, the death state is the awakened state. It is the, it is the reality state. Um, yeah. 
That you, you're the very prescient. This is exactly the question I was going to ask you. Um, that when you went through these repetitive openings, releases, um, and deaths, it, it became easier. In fact, you became more familiar with it. Right, the, the very the Tibetan word for meditation to become familiar with. And yeah. So it's only because again we don't we're not we don't understand it. We're not familiar with it. Hence, we yeah. fear it. And so you die over and over and over. You become yeah. more familiar with it. You understand it. You befriend it. And you go, yeah. oh, my gosh, this yeah. is just this natural yeah. state of openness that is only fearful in reference to the ego structure, to yeah. the form which we're exclusively identified with that we're so afraid of letting go of. So just to re- I want to reinstate this. Yeah. Because it's just so important. It, it becomes easier the more frequently you die in meditation or through these sessions or whatever, the more familiar you get with it until it becomes like his holiness Karmapa said at the moment of transition in this beautiful interview, two days before he died, nothing happens. Nothing happens. To, to yeah. get to that point, to say with utter conviction, nothing happens. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Death becomes your best friend. Truly, it becomes your best friend. In your practice, you're always looking for your best friend. Yeah. Uh, now, I just want to qualify again a little bit just okay. because of the unusual scope. The, the hardest strip down that I went through in any of my sessions, the most extreme de- you know, destruction of was in the 70th session, mm. in the last, the, what I consider the last vision I was given in among many major visions. And so uh, at, at one level earlier, and I had gone through so many deaths and they do get easier and you look forward to them and you embrace them and so on and so forth. And yet I have to put that beside this mm. particular phenomenon where the transition was not easy. I, mm. I didn't resist it. I gave into it but it was really extreme. And that's because my session or the consciousness guiding my session was taking me into an extremely radical state of consciousness that was deeper into deep time than it had ever taken me before. It was giving me one last culminating series of teachings that required an unusually large canvas. Mm. And so it had nothing to do with personal enlightenment or personal ego death or something like that. So once again, uh, we always have to contextualize all of our observations in terms of the level of consciousness that we're working with. But in general, I think you're absolutely right. The more you die, the more comfortable you get with it. And, And to be able to say, as the Karmapa did, nothing, nothing happens, yeah. is to be uh, in a cherished, cherished state. Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? And if we really understand that, again, returning to the narrative, the contraction openness narrative, if we truly understand and feel in our, in our heart of hearts that when we die, it's the ultimate grand opening, right? There we yeah. go. It's the yeah. grand opening. And if yeah. we understand that these are little miniature openings, we become more familiar with those in our meditation state. I mean, how much yeah. of the path is letting go of identification to thought, to mm-hmm. body, to exclusive identification with form? It is absolutely death in slow motion. And therefore, towards the end of life, then we really actually have, like you said, it's a complete reversal of our normal fear. Now we actually have something to look forward to. Instead yeah. of going into the bar, looking through the rear view mirror, 
That's what makes everything so painful. Yeah. We actually now have something to look forward to is the big unwind, the big unwind, yeah. the final exhalation, the final openness, which is absolutely fundamentally ecstatic. It's yeah. this release into the, into the beloved. And so th- I, this yeah. is so important. And I love your languaging here of the return to the beloved. Um, because if we have um, this, again, in a heart of hearts, if we know that we are going to return to the embrace of the beloved, you're going to return to your lover at the moment of death and be held in this ultimate holding environment. Oh my goodness, does that change our relationship to the end of life? I am going to return to the embrace of the cosmic mother. Wow, these are then you die as a siddha with a smile on your face instead of yeah. kicking and screaming and, and, and making a really difficult transition. So this yeah. cannot, in my opinion, be overstated because this will radically change the way we relate to old age sickness. As I look down and this apparatus has served me pretty well for decades is starting to crumble. Yeah. Instead of oh crap, it's oh wow. Yeah. It's like whatever. Yeah. It's the one <laughs> wonderful joy and, and mercy of life that they it can't stop you from dying. <laughs> you know, it's like the older you get, every you get one foot closer to joy and ecstasy. And the whole attempt to you know cryogenics to not die oh, and to freeze the body, that's just sort of so sad. I mean, it's just so terribly sad. And and it's not. You know, yeah, it's such. That's why you know I taught near-death episode research for years in my courses, along with reincarnation research yeah. and other things. And over and over and over again, when students, when I went with students through this wonderful literature, and they watched how those people's lives were totally changed, their relationship to death was totally changed by their temporary experience of what's on the other side of death, and having experienced the beloved in their own form of the yep. beloved that had an experience of softening permanently their own fear of death and changing their expectations. So th- this is, you know, this death research uh, is really, really a powerful psycho spiritual work. I, I couldn't agree more. The work of, of Grayson and, and um, Eben Alexander and others who come back with these really mm-hmm. remarkable stories. And I think, this also is worth reinstating that I, I believe it's like I've never had an official NDE, but I've had what I call meditative NDEs. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like you don't have to have these over and over for them to change your life. You just need yeah. one. <laughs> and it's because, and I wonder if this resonates with you, it's because they're so true. Yeah. They're so real that yeah. it, it just takes one to yeah. completely change the texture of your life. And this is, as you know, um, they're using these agents now to remove fear yeah. of death for people who are just terrified. Yeah. One session, one session yeah. will completely open you to the point where all fear of, of death is done and over with. Yeah. That's no small because gift. It, as you say, it people say, well, how do you know what you whether what you experienced was real? Maybe it was just a com- complicated hallucination or self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's like, no. You know what reality feels like, and this is more real than the physical real. It is a hyper-reality. It's just, it's objectivity is unmistakable. Yeah. And you don't have to, you don't, can't quibble with it, don't need to argue with it, don't need to question. It's just, it's obviously true. Exactly. And then really, again, come back and come back to the contraction thing. It is in fact, ego's inability 
to digest, metabolize that, that then contracts against it and mm-hmm. fights against it. Um, it's a type of uh, reducing valve. I, I love Huxley, what Huxley said, the brain reducing valve. That, yeah. And on one level, we need it because it's like you said, we, we don't have the capacity yeah. to be developmentally that open. And so we, on one level, we need this type of reduction in order to survive. But really, I would argue that's what constitutes growth is reducing the reducing valve, continuing to open until we can actually um, become this ultimate openness in this, and and in that sense, become the cosmos itself. And so this ties into what we were talking about last time that, and I love what you said about this, that um, in order to become, I, I don't remember your exact terms, but something like in order to become one with the universe, we first need to become one with the self. And you could say they're the same, yeah. right? Can you say a little bit more about that? How that was um, yeah, kind of played out in your own experience? Because well, I think, again, this is where we go mm-hmm. and we die, right? We, we become yeah. nothing. Yeah. But simultaneously, we become everything. Yeah. Well, the experience was to become one with all of existence. You know, we would say to become one with God, to become one with the universe, to become one with one. Uh, we can't do that if we're not one within ourselves. If, if we have unintegrated pieces of shadow or ego fragments or untouchable wounds or bruises. So when you, when you move into intimacy with life, Life itself brings these unintegrated pieces to the surface so you can make your peace with them and so you can reabsorb them so you can become whole and coherent within your own being. Because how could you become one with life if you're not one with yourself? And so it's not, you know, just these things develop synergistically. The deeper your experience of oneness with life, the deeper your experience of oneness with yourself until they're stopped, until these divisions just, they disappear inside of yourself. And I think one of the wonderful qualities we appreciate about awakened beings is their is their integrity, is their oneness, their sense of deep relaxation within themselves which is a, a outgrowth of their intimacy with life itself. And, yeah. and isn't, that, isn't that fantastic the way yet, yet again, this reiterates oh, the, the process of reiteration itself, that by learning to, in fact, embrace ourselves. And again, talk mm-hmm. about practical, maitri, loving kindness, learning mm-hmm. to, in a certain way, unite, befriend, um, every aspect of our usually disenfranchised spectrum of our being, all the parts that we reject that we then throw into the unconscious mind that keeps a large part of the unconscious mind going. And so therefore, to me, Chris, it's like when we understand the divine nature of reality, which includes the divine nature of the the entire spectrum of my being, that what without this framework would be considered the shadow elements, the thing, the parts of ourselves that we don't want to embrace that we that therefore we spend our lives in a certain very um, yeah. sophisticated avoidance strategy. If we understand through this view, say yes, befriend every aspect of your own being. I mean, again, like with death, this radically changes the way we relate to the unwanted, so-called aspects of the, our own spectrum of our being right here and right now. Yeah. That we learn how to open, open, and say yes to whatever takes place, and then that type of integration. Yeah. And I love this 
interjection of the integrity we feel people then leads to um, fundamental integration with the so-called outside world altogether. Yeah. And one of the one of the last pieces, of course, well recognized in the spiritual traditions is the importance of giving up private enlightenment, you know, because that's just spiritual shadow. Uh, so that the more, you know, everything you do for others is part of is your awakening and everything you do for yourself, including trying to become enlightened, uh, it gets in your way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this and again, this brings the social nexus of the path into play, which I love what you write about in your book that we tend to think, and I think provisionally so, if we look at the term Hinayana in its kind of pedagogical approach, there's a lot to be said about start at home, start where you are, clean up with your stuff. Absolutely. But the near, but the near enemy of that is then yeah. you become a little bit myopic, a little bit nearsighted. And and for me, I say this with as part of my path. I mean, on one level. I'm the happiest when I'm down in my study, writing, being my nerd and on retreat. But then like I did my long retreat by design with others, you can't wake up without others. And therefore then others become your path. The, yeah. the we aspect, the social cultural aspect. I think this is incredibly important. I speak from my own experience because otherwise then the solitary um, path, the, 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 the solitary realizing path can become a real trap that, that again, in the narrative of opening, opening, we then work with the people that press our buttons. We've installed those buttons. So that's interesting, <laughs> but bringing, bringing, you know, I had a little run in this morning with the guy who cuts my lawn mm -hmm. and I paid very close attention to that. I, I said, Oh, uh, first of all, I capitulated to my habit patterns. It was like, Oh crap. There was that again. And then as I stepped away for a second, I said, Oh my gosh, that was Padma Sambhava teaching me <laughs> about patience. And so to me, as I come out, and I come out of my really long three-year retreat, my aspiration now is to enter lifetime retreat with this view that all these annoying, again, that's just my projection, all these annoying aspects of my reality, now those are my path. And I love this because there's tremendous power in tradition and path as it's traditionally put forth, but there's also colossal enemies. And one of these is just that, is that you, I can only do this when all the atmospheric conditions are right in my own life, right? Yeah. And as the world is going to crap right now, I think this becomes a little bit more helpful for us to bring this kind of view to so-called unwanted experiences so that we can bring those onto our own path, realizing that they are our path. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, it's like you're interviewing me. I need to back up a little bit. <laughs> I get so excited. I can't help myself. <laughs> uh, with your permission, Chris, I, I want to transition into what, again, I thought was um, just such a dazzling section in your book. Uh, let's talk a little bit more, if you would, about the, the light, the, the diamond luminosity. You, you mentioned several times early on this, this uh, phenomena of light. Um, this is, to me, among the most profound aspects of the whole shebang. And so if, if you can maybe walk us through your exploration of, of this light and how it worked with you uh, on the path to introduce you to, I think, is this, this fundamental kind of matrix of, of reality. Well, this transition took place 15 years into my work. 
So I had already gone through ego death. I had gone through the ocean of suffering, of collective suffering. I had navigated through archetypal reality, uh, both the sort of platonic archetypes and uh, the tissue of our of our species mind, the tissue of the human psyche, and then had been taken into this year of incredible blessings of of experiences of oneness, of shunyata, emptiness of self, uh, cosmic love, primal void. You know, I felt profoundly existentially complete. I mean, I, I felt like I had been asked to give something in the ocean of suffering work, and I gave it. And the universe had just rewarded me with just a cascade of blessings that left me feeling profoundly existentially complete. I mean, I had been given a, a, a deep experience of and a new understanding of reincarnation that transcended classical, you know, Eastern understandings of reincarnation. I had been taken into the birth of the diamond soul. I had been given many visionary experiences of where humanity was going in the future human. And I reviewed these things just to sort of give a context. It, it, and along the way, I had experienced light many times in different modalities, in, in different forms. And then in the, I came into a time when I went through yet one more a very, very intense death process, which took an entire session. And then the next session, I began immediately and was transported into the fruition portion of the session in which I was taken into this light that was beyond any light that I had experienced before. I dissolved into a luminosity that was absolutely spellbinding and intoxicating. And in my notes, I called it the death state because it I entered it in a form of dying, which was uh, an ultimate form of dying. At a key point, I was surrounded by a, a swirling circle, a, a disc that contained all the moments of my life. And I would fall from the center into this circle and touch one of some aspect of my life and I would instantly die into the state of luminosity and then be brought back to the center and fall in a different direction, touching another different set of experiences. And as soon as I did, I would instantly be taken into this death state. And this went over and over, happened over and over until eventually uh, there was no going and coming. There was just a permanent abiding or at least a session abiding in this transcendent luminosity of the death state. Uh, I would say ecstasy, and it's true, but it's it's a different than earlier forms of ecstasy. It just the, the most striking characteristic of it for me was its clarity. Clarity, clarity, clarity. I mean, it was the context within which all thinking and all feeling took place, but in itself, it was hyper, hyper, hyper clear, breathtakingly clear, just took my breath away. And I understood the teachings that even just touching something like this for one second dissolves thousands of years of wandering around in the shadows of samsara. It 
And I, as I came to understand it, uh, this was what I understood to be extra samsaric reality and a particularly intense version of extra samsaric reality. At first, I thought of it in terms of Sambhogakaya because of the extreme bliss of it. But as I really went back to the sources and studied them more carefully, I came to associate it with Dharmakaya, the clear light of absolute reality. The next session, when I went back, of course, all I wanted to do was get back into this condition. I had no interest in exploring the other dimensions that I had gone into, but I did, wasn't taken back into this experience. And uh, I wasn't taken back for another year, five more sessions, very intense purification, very intense kind of cleansing and healing, other things going on. And it was after a year that I went into the diamond luminosity for the second time. And this is what happened over the next several years, that it would take about a year of very, very intense work. And then I would die awaken again into the diamond luminosity. The second time I went into the diamond luminosity was the deepest experience of it that I had any time in any of my sessions. Uh, and it was in that deep immersion that I had my cosmological vision completely uh, reversed and turned upside down. I had the experience of a reality of light beyond the diamond luminosity light. I, my field pivoted. I saw reality far, far in the distance that was just exquisitely beautiful light. A ray of light hit me and it completely shattered me. Uh, and I called it the absolute light. You know, it was a light beyond even diamond luminosity. And in that one second, I understood that it's an infinite progression. And I had to give up completely the idea of ever coming to some type of end state. Because mm -hmm. always my spiritual tradition had taught me there were end states. That's why I was doing this work, to reach home or to become one with God or to become... Uh, you know, one with the universe and some fundamental, you know, dissolve into the metacosmic void. And I began to realize that with that instant, I realized, no, it's an infinite progression and death will keep coming back as long as you keep pushing because you're never going to reach the end of it. At that point, in the, the next time I went into the deaths, into the diamond luminosity, and the fourth and final time I went into the diamond luminosity, I wasn't going deeper into the diamond luminosity, but the diamond luminosity was crunching itself more deeply into my being. Uh, and all the lessons were shifting and pivoting around that. It was dissolving the structure of my body. I mean, I could feel it crunching itself into my cellular makeup and, and a very, very intense physical detoxification, purification processes. And then this eventually culminated in uh, the fourth session into the, in the experience of giving me an initiation into uh, the Buddha nature, into the pure nature of mind. And I began to understand that that, magnificent reality, which has no beginning, it has no end, 
It always is, always has been. We never have stepped out of it. We never step into it. It is the, it is the abiding foundation of all existence. That is, in a sense, the embodied diamond luminosity. It is, it is the closest I've come to, uh, to experiencing what diamond luminosity is like in the body. My other experiences of diamond luminosity were diamond luminosity as they exist as an extra physical reality, an extra samsaric reality. But this was an experience of pure light as the foundation of my very physical existence. Okay. And that was the last time I experienced the diamond luminosity. From there, I went through a couple of experiences, then the final vision in the 70th session, and then uh, basically the, the consciousness guiding my work wrapped it up, gave me a last set of instructions and sent me on my way. Oh, I just want to take 15 seconds to pause and, and just digest that a little bit. Um... I understand. I've been digesting it for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> because it, the, the ineffable and enormity of it, 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 it this, this, it's a wonderful, as you're sharing this with me, Chris, and by the way, thank you so much for trusting to do that. I, I find this very interesting dance between kind of the mythopoetic aspect of my being and, and rendering just bathing in the artistry of what you shared versus, okay, formulating whatever um, in terms of my references. And so, I mean, on one level, I, I, I almost hesitate to say anything because what can one say without just kind of literally watering it down, distorting it. But, but with your understanding, Chris, of, of Buddhist nomenclature, because I, I remember in your book, you also shared um, somewhat interesting synchronicity that when the diamond lucid luminosity was introduced to you in this way, literally almost same same day kind of thing, the Vajrayana then became um, part of your journey and your path. And so using that languaging, it's very interesting for me uh, when you say these things, I, I, I find it very, very interesting, humbling exploration of, of, of my referencing um, in well, in capacity or lack thereof to understand it. Okay, like for instance, oh, that sounds like the Dharmata. Oh, that sounds like the Dharma Datu. And I really hesitate to say that because on one level, you I think you understand it, it shrink wraps the enormity of what you're saying into these names. But on another level, mm -hmm. we can sit here in silence or we can do the best we can with language to talk about something that transcends language. And so we do the with, best we can. Yeah. So, with that said, would you uh, would you would you resonate with your understanding of the Buddhist tradition and descriptions of, of somewhat analogous states? Clear light mind is that another quality that comes in that could say this? You you use the term diamond luminosity. Interesting. Vajrayana is the diamond path, but using and again without any violation of your own personal experience, are there other um, Tibetan languagings or Buddhist terms that would relate to what you experienced that you could say that really sounds like the Dharma Datu, you've used Dharmakaya before. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm trying to simply relate using my reference structures to what you're sure. sharing. 
I'm, yes, I'm, there are. I mean, clear light mind to me is maybe closer to uh, the nature of mind in term that quality. And this is, I still, I still am digesting. I'm still trying to appreciate some of the differences between the diamond luminosity as an extra samsaric reality, and then the diamond luminosity as at the foundation of nirmanakaya existence. Uh, so there certainly are many correlations and uh, and again, all honor to the great beings who have explored these dimensions much more deeply than I've been able to. So, I mean, always, always, uh, I, a humble student, truly a humble student of the great teachers in this respect. Uh, I put the names as best as I can to clarify or to qualify, but you're right. I mean, it's tricky because you can't, this can get shrink wrapped and that just stops the mystery yeah, and, and right. just lets the mind back in where it really doesn't right. belong. So let me just give this a step into a little different framework. The universe is 13.7 billion years old. Our planet is about four and a half billion years old. When we plot the, the evolving structure of Homo, you know, we go through Homo erectus, Homo sapiens, you know, the various stages, we got the big brain, the 50% increase in our brain about 100,000 years ago. Uh, Self-awareness begins to emerge, uh, you know, along the way, and about Three to 5,000 years ago, we began to develop the technology, the spiritual technology that allows us to concentrate our mind and bring us down into that part of our being where we are not of the private self, but we touch the life of the world. We touch that which is universal. And there is this tremendous aha, this awakened sense. And we've applied all sorts of names to that experience of our true nature, our essential nature. Now, what, whatever this is, and I think you and I have a pretty good sense of what that experience is, what this is, it is the tip of the iceberg of the unfolding, the intentional, exquisite unfolding of this trans extraordinary consciousness that we might call divinity or maybe not want to call it divinity. Uh, this unfolding, which has been gestating in creation for 13.7 billion years, and that's only in this Big Bang. We don't know how many other expansions and contractions of earlier universes precede this particular Big Bang explosion. We don't know. I mentioned this just to underscore the enormity, the profoundness of the reality within which awakening takes place and the reality within which even deeper and deeper and deeper awakenings take place as have been recognized by our spiritual traditions. Our spiritual traditions are only three, four, five thousand years old. And that's a lot of time for an incarnating soul to, to penetrate into the deeper texture of existence. But if we were to go forward in time, 100,000 years, and that's a wink 
of cosmic time. But if we went forward 100,000 years, surely, reasonably, we would expect our great spiritual teachers to be having deeper experiences of the universe than our best spiritual teachers today are capable of having. Because it's it's an ongoing developmental process of exploring the deep mystery. So on the one hand, I want to honor and affirm the categories and descriptions uh, of the beings who have lived up to this point in time. And I place my experiences at their feet and I, I seek their guidance and understanding what has taken place. But just as the absolute light came from a reality far beyond whatever the diamond luminosity is. Likewise, evolution is continuing. Evolution is developing. And we are nowhere near even 10% of human development. And so I would expect and almost demand that we expect deeper and deeper and deeper capacities for spiritual experience to continue to emerge. So on the one hand, we want to use the categories to to help us hold on to, illumine, understand. On the other hand, we don't want to shrink wrap them. Hmm. We want to stay open. And staying open in this way, I think, is to stay open is to stay open to a deeper intimacy with the beloved to stay open to the light that is the light that gives birth to the world second by second. That's really, that's exquisite. And what, what comes to mind again is this wonderful kind of fundamental archetypal narrative of openness, where on one level, the invitation here is an ideological openness that, that we can very easily, again, the near enemy of tradition, like you, I have tremendous, oh my goodness, tremendous allegiance, respect for tradition. But if tradition isn't, and you, I think you understand this in the best sense of the word, it isn't modernized without being edited and distorted, then it can become ossified. Um, you mm-hmm. can reify even the tradition, and then we become closed around our ideologies and belief systems. And so what I hear you saying that I really appreciate is this ideological openness. Let's let's keep even open to that. But Chris, if I might, a, a, a question mm-hmm. of clarity and then... Um, a few other things. When you when you use the word extra samsaric, that that is not a term that's in my common vocabulary. What what do you mean when you talk about the light as extra? Do you mean post trans samsaric? What, what do you mean by extra samsaric? I mean beyond the bardo, beyond all the layers of the bardo, beyond all samsara, uh, at a place where uh, the patterns of cyclic existence mm. have been eclipsed. My sense of it is that in between, you know, physical reality and the rhythms of physical reality, when we die, we enter into various patterns of bardo reality, various spiritual states. Uh, But eventually, that has many, many, many layers, thousands of layers, but one can go beyond that. And what is the nature of reality that's beyond the bardo existence? Yeah. Uh, The Buddha refused to describe it very wisely, right? Right. He says, you know, just experience it for yourself, you know. And my sense is that outside of that, uh, what happens in the upper bardo and 
it, the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter until you move into a world which is all light. Mm. It's just all light. And the quality of light is, is it's different because it's transbardo. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, mm-hmm. all individualized existence. And here I have to be careful because uh, I, for one, do not, see individuality as the enemy of spiritual awakening, because when we stabilize deep, deep spiritual awakening, our individuality is limit, liberated, not extinguished. So I don't want to say that in the domain of extra samsaric luminosity, there is no individuality, but it is an extraordinarily um, tr- translucent or an extraordinarily mm-hmm. transparent individuality. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make it a practice to just pause um, and work with my usually incredibly habituated reflex to fill the space after you make these um, amazing statements, because I want to rest in, in the somatic impact of what you're sharing and not capitulate to my usual intellectual contractive mm-hmm. predispositions, um, which I don't think pay respect and honor to what we're trying to discuss here. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me ask you this, Chris. So when this is very interesting, I mean, there's so many very profound principles being um, explored and even challenged here. So I'm wondering how what you're sharing with this. And I was, I was probably as surprised when I read this as you were, when you experienced it, the, the dissolution of the so-called Omega point, that there isn't some final destination. Um, and I'm wondering how you might reconcile or balance what you experience as this endless evolutionary unfolding with things, so to speak, quote unquote, like the changeless nature. And, and the reason I mentioned this is one way that I've played with this, and again, wonderful to be open challenged along these fronts is that on one level, emptiness, in this case, emptiness is Dharmakaya, emptiness doesn't evolve, form evolves. And so I'm wondering how that lands with you when, when the Buddhist tradition talks about Buddha nature is changeless nature, how can something change and evolve that doesn't have form? That's the, an, an oxymoron. Form evolves, not emptiness. So yeah. how does that land with you? How do you, again, it's like, oh, they, we're getting down <laughs> to the razor's edge of everything here. Yeah. So uh, how do you, is that a dissonance with you or where? how do you play with that? It's, I don't feel it as a dissonance. And it is a deep mystery, which I don't pretend to, to fathom in any profound you know, way. So I'll just share a few bits and pieces. Okay. Um, on those occasions when I have um, relaxed into, fallen into, been drawn into the unchanging condition, the unchanging reality, the reality within which everything arises and passes away, and it itself is uh, not impacted at all. It it is, it appears to be uh, the fertile 
empty the fertile void. I want to hold back emptiness there, the fertile void from within which all uh, existence springs. Now, if we then step into the existence that springs from within this cosmic uh, fertile emptiness or void, what's happening? And we just look at the Big Bang and we look at the magnificent story of the, the explosion of energy and the congealing into matter and the formation of galaxies and the formation of solar systems and sun life and then emergence of, of life and the emergence of self and then self-awareness and so on and so forth. Clearly existence seems to be going somewhere. And, and it seems to just delight in, in, the, in form and the unfolding and complexification and making self-aware and awakening and, and empowering and the, the empowering of the soul as our former life memories become conscious and we wake up to our 100,000-year identity, not just our 100-year identity. So form is going somewhere. And that which is driving form is going somewhere. And it's, it's just the magnificent creativity of the universe. And that's why, you know, the mind of the universe, because I didn't want to call it God. And that's why I, I'm not terribly comfortable with the word entheogen, because that has theos. And our understandings of God are so limited, so I yield into um, the cosmologist language of the universe because we measure the universe in light years, 6 million million miles, and it's billions of light years across, that bag, that huge. And yet, when we right now, as we become self-conscious as this you know, complex biped, and we drop our awareness down to the center of ourself, what we find is this magnificent reality, which feels to be unchanging, and yet it seems to be at the center of everything oh, which is changing. Beautiful. So it, it seems to be clearly kind of a both and. So the divinity, if we use the word divinity for it, the, the divinity which delights in existence has at least... And I don't know whether this is ultimately true, because we may just be scratching the surface even now, but its nature, that infinite nature, that it seems to be at some level unchanging at the center of perpetual change. And that's kind of the best I can do about it. I think it's fantastic. And it's, again, completely revelatory of um conceptual frameworks it, just because um concept can't relate to this seeming paradox uh, it, it doesn't mean reality doesn't abide by those paradoxes right it's only yeah. par it's only a paradox to the conceptual mind yeah right. to the little mind it right. has no problem right exactly <laughs> exactly it, yeah. it's it's only when we try to shrink wrap it that we enter into the world of paradox and irony. And on one level to me, this is beautiful because this is in fact, one of the ways that I've come to register this marvelous dissonance isn't the right word, but when, when duality tries to open and wrap itself around non-duality, which of course it cannot do, 
one characteristic of that is in fact this irony paradox uh things that like the niels bohr i, I love what he introduce the notion of complementarity, you know, that the phenomena can be, it's not either or, it's and, they can be both light and particle. We can, you can be both Chris Beige and the cosmos. Who says you can't be both? <laughs> Aristotle says we can't be both. You know, we live mm -hmm. in his, we live in his world. And so yeah. whew, one other really important thing for me here, Chris, is there does seem to be, we, we talked, I believe, very briefly about this last time, I want to return to it because this is important to me in terms of path quality. In fact, the very notion of path. On one level, there seems to be a suggestion in your languaging, um, in, in what you're sharing here, what you shared in your book, this quality of return. I, I want to return to the beloved. I want to return to the light, longing to return. And perhaps this also lies in with this whole notion of, of, of paradox, but I'm also wondering how we can play with that, with what to me seems the more immediate aspect of this is a, a large part. I mentioned this because this is a big part of my current path is, is really decimating the notion of path itself that how fair is it in fact to say the issue of return is a provisional um, approach description, and then perhaps a more absolute approach would be around recognition that you're not you don't really need to return to anything. The the, the issue is recognition and self liberation. So does that somehow speak to you when when you reference longing to return to the mother, to the beloved, to the clear light? That again denotes this subtle dualism. I have to return. Versus, no, I just need to remove the cataracts of confusion, open the aperture of my heart and mind, and the, the, the light the mother is right in front of me right now. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think that's a, a fair observation. Return implies um, absence, and the nature of union dissolves absence, and so it dissolves the category of return. And it encourages a different set of categories because uh, it's like the eternal here, the eternal now. It's just here all the time, and so I, I think that's absolutely true. That it's a, it is, it fits at one level, but then it dissolves itself at a deeper level. Now, having said that, again, I want to contextualize this within my particular journey which is not the same as the journey of spiritual awakening. So the journey of spiritual awakening is this art and craft of awakening into uh, and of releasing all the constrictions of the present self so that we can live in a, in a state of an abiding transparency or shunyata to life as it flows through us like wind blowing through the trees. And we simply, we rest in the abiding present of the universe as it continues to unfold. Cosmological exploration is different. It's kind of like getting into a rocket ship and going into a different, at a different solar system in the galaxy, 
maybe even going into a different galaxy altogether. And, and that is pushing the, the capacity of experience, pushing the limits of awareness so that the condition of remembering reaches beyond even the nature of mind. It's not about simply if if I were had been seeking only to uh, awaken into the abiding present, I would have adopted a completely different strategy. I think I think Myron Stolaroff's recommendation of working with very very low doses of LSD in meditation practice would be a better strategy. But the the strategy I used of working with very very high doses of LSD pushes consciousness so far beyond enlightenment. And and I say that humbly, trying not to confuse the categories, not like I'm enlightened and I'm more than enlightened, Mm -hmm. not like that at all, but it's going beyond the state of the abiding condition of emptiness into the unchanging reality underneath. It's going deeper into physical reality, deeper into consciousness reality. Where does consciousness come from? What are the prototypes that inform the very structure of time and space? The prototypes that inform the nature of of, um, archetypal consciousness within the human psyche? What are are the very forms that, uh, that are giving birth to time and space. What is the light that gave birth to the world? Not just the gave birth to our moment to moment exogenous, but the light that gave birth to the universe. From that condition, there is a sense of return. Hmm. Entering that condition and then coming back from that condition. And that's why I, I think what you say is absolutely true within a spiritual context, as Mm -hmm. we usually mean spiritual, return is an oxymoron, it's better to use other categories. But from within a context of cosmic exploration, maybe there's a place because I personally cannot imagine how I could personally, maybe other beings could and can and God bless them, but I cannot imagine how I could personally live in some of the places that I have touched. Mm. And so I can only visit them as a, as a visitor, as a sojourner. And so I come back and I try to bring back as much as I can. I try to cultivate whatever I can of that condition in my daily life. But I know that the vast majority of that reality, I will never be able to bring back in this lifetime, maybe a hundred lifetimes from now, maybe so, I don't know, but I will never be able to. And therefore, in that context, return has a certain ring of truth to it. Hmm. Wow. With, again, uh, several things that come to mind here. Hmm. Um, and again, I, I, you're a philosopher, uh, it's interesting. This is a very compelling term for me. Um, I think in many instances, things become philosophy because they haven't become direct experience yet. So then we use that slight pejorative mm-hmm. thing that's philosophy. And so what you're sharing here is, <clears throat> is really quite something. And I wouldn't say this is, is, this is simply to discuss it. I almost said the word challenge it, but that's not the right word mm-hmm. to discuss this, that what comes to mind. And so 
educate me, teach me, are again, I, I'm completely um, admissive of of my frameworks because I, I honestly, unless I sit here in silence, I don't have a choice, right? <laughs> I, 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 in fact, sil- silence is the language of God. All else is poor translation. Yeah. Me. I'm a poor translator, but I'm doing my best. So okay. when you, something that that rubs me, and and I, I love the rub because mm-hmm. that's what creates the pearl. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile? Teach me um, when you talk about this this difference, and this is foundational for you, but it does challenge me when you talk about, in fact, the difference between the individual versus the cosmic, because let's let's take, for instance, the reference point that does speak to me, Chris, that, that I'm finding some refuge in here that maybe is limited of Advaita Vedanta, for instance, that how do you reconcile the, the duality that's inherent in your statement that separates individual from cosmological? Because if, in fact, you're saying that, that still does imply a duality. And so, for me, I, I'm wrestling, playing, dancing with mm-hmm. this idealistic. I'm, you know, in Buddhism, as you know, Chitta mm-hmm. Matra, Yogacara, the world is is heart, mind, spirit. There, you're what you're saying here seems to intimate still some other cosmological versus individual. And so, mm-hmm. how do you work play with that? In terms of the the what you were talking about earlier, reconcile yeah. that with oneness. Now, because yeah. on one level, I seem to hear a monism for you, yeah. <clears throat> but now you're talking about dual aspect monism again. I feel like I think you understand it on one level. It's like, oh, please yeah. don't don't become a philosopher again. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Here yeah. I am <laughs> talking about such beautiful stuff, and here I yeah. am dual aspect monism. Oh, yeah. please just go away. But I, I want to understand this a little bit more so that when I yeah. leave this, I'm not merely left with a wonderful, which is probably the best, this wonderful transmission from your experience. But how do you play with that? Is there, in fact, an inherent cosmological dualism when you say individual versus cosmic versus yeah. the monism that you seem to suggest throughout your journey? Yeah. writing? I don't see any dualism in it. And if there is a dualism, it's not of my making. It's of the universe's making. Mm. The universe begins as one in some fundamental core, you know, pre-Big Bang, instant Big Bang. It begins as one and it manifests diversity. I didn't choose that. You didn't choose this. We didn't choose it. The universe chose to manifest diversity. We are part of that diversity. And the universe chose to empower in its process of self-emergence. It chose to empower life to become self-aware and self-empowering. So the soul grows and grows and grows. The soul is that consciousness which holds the awareness, the experience of all of our lifetimes, multiple lifetimes. So we're expanding, we're growing and growing and growing. We didn't choose that. We didn't make ourselves. We are discovering a world that was designed before we even, billions of years before we even showed up on the scene. So we show up in the scene and we begin to try to make sense of it. And we begin to try to understand these things. And one thing is very clear that there is a part and there is the whole. Mm. 
There are many, many parts, and there is there is the whole. And when we, when our spiritual experience deepens, we have experiences of the whole. And at the same time, we experience ourselves as a part. And how do we reconcile those? I, I think we reconcile them with a deep understanding of emptiness, shunyata. And emptiness here is simply emptiness of self, that when we open to the wholeness of life, it's immediately obvious that there is no separate self. We are part of life. We are an abiding part of life. We are a bubble in the ocean. We are part of the process. That's why, to me, oneness and emptiness are two different sides of the same coin. It's simply the experience that I'm living and breathing every molecule of my being, every thought of my being, every consciousness, every soul, everything I am is part of the manifestation of the universe. I am the universe in that respect. And yet, I'm obviously just a little bitty part, a little bitty planet, a little bitty solar system in a galaxy within multiple billion, two trillion galaxies. Mm-hmm. So we are part and we are, we are, our nature is the, is the totality of the whole. In that respect, there is no duality except the duality which is forced upon us by the conditions of life. Mm-hmm. But there's no ontological duality. Mm-hmm. There's a functional duality, but I, I don't even like to use philosophical categories and metaphysical categories because that traps us within human thought and the history of human thought. And the history of human thought, particularly in the Western philosophical tradition, is so constrained. It It, it, it is not rooted in deep experience. It's rooted in... Uh, sensory experience and highly intellectually refined sensory experience, which is why I think, of course, when we turn the, to the contemplative traditions, different philosophical insights emerge or different insights emerge because it's a deeper experience. And I think that's the significance of psychedelics for the West as a philosopher. They not only give us new clinical categories and clinical insights and opportunities to heal the personal psyche, but as a philosopher, they open up the entire world of cosmic experience. And so as we try to digest those experiences and articulate them and understand them, it it allows us to draw from a deeper set of experiences, which allows us to basically entertain a deeper set of ideas. So I, I, I have a training as philosophy of religion. I, and I point to that only to differentiate myself from the good psychologists who are working in clinical context. But I don't speak like a philosopher, do I? And, and I, <laughs> I don't do the things that philosophers do. And they would disown me in a minute. They are, they do disown me. Yeah. You know. So to me, there's no duality. There's a functional duality, which is basically just a bubble Beautiful. on the ocean of time Beautiful. and existence. That, that, that's an incredible response to basically a, a very subtle, thorny issue. Um, mm-hmm. One one. A question, Chris, from the very outset uh, is when you had the experience of the diamond luminosity, post-sashin, post-meditation, where does that light go? What is the relationship of that light to the phenomenal display of the world and appearance? Um, Does the world emerge Mm. from that light? Is mm-hmm. the world an expression of that light or both? So, 
So you you seem to not seem you you enter return to a luminosity state, and when you so to speak came down, came out of it, this world appeared. What mm-hmm. is the relationship of the discovery of that light to the perhaps covering up, or that's my languaging? Where does that light go, hmm. and how is it? What is its yeah. relationship to appearance? Yeah. Yeah, good question, which I'm not competent to answer, but I, I take some pointers from science and some pointers from my experience. The light doesn't go anywhere, of course. The light is always there. We gain access to it yeah. for a period of time, but uh, we withdraw from yeah. the light into, you know, Plato would say the world of shadows. But to me, that denigrates the beauty, the magnificence of physical reality. Scientists tell us that all of the world is made of molecules. Molecules are made out of atoms. Atoms are made out of subatomic particles. Ultimately, we get down to quarks. In the end, matter is made out of light. Yeah, correct. So if, correct. if the scientists are telling us that matter is made out of light, and if we go into our mind and drop into the deepest levels of our mind and we encounter light, it's like, well, <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's a, such a synergy there. So my understanding is that the light doesn't disappear. The light is manifesting the physical world. The light is manifesting as the physical world. That means when we really sit with the whole, trying to hold it all together, we get to experience the physical world as the manifestation of the unified being of being, which is light. It manifests, and and everywhere we touch the world, we find genius in the creation of solar systems and how stars live and die, and in DNA, and in ecosystems. Everywhere we're touching the world, we find layers and layers and layers of genius. And if we keep digging down deep enough, we fall into quantum reality, you know, dark energy, dark matter, light. They call it dark energy, dark matter, but it really should be light energy, light matter, you know, yeah. light, light, light. Yeah. So it, if I live, if I get depressed and I live in a state of sadness, or I live in, a, live in a state of disconnection, then that's only, that's only my own mind throwing up shadows of illusion. But when I'm clear, when I return to clarity, I see the world as a miracle yeah. manifestation. And I love that the Prophet Muhammad said that the only miracle he would cite for the truth of what he was teaching was the miracle of the universe. And, and isn't it worth, again, I'm, I'm sure you know this, but perhaps it's worth just re- reinstating that when you say I experience it, perhaps it experiences itself, right? There, yeah. On one level, yes, we use that languaging, but even then it's almost, it's, it is impossible um, yeah. to talk about this without stumbling into this. It's, it's this, yeah. as you know, reflexive awareness of the light itself. And so yeah. I'm wondering, Chris, is it, is it fair to say that then I, I I'm, I'm, I mean, this is so, yeah. Integral to the whole thing. It's literally enveloped in the term enlightenment. This is a big yeah. deal. And, yeah. and so I, I of all the teachings, both in, in, in physics, cosmology, and spirituality, the ones that 
captivate me the most, that, that I find the most ineffably profound, are in fact these teachings of luminosity, which inseparable from emptiness is emptiness slash luminosity. Mm-hmm. Is it is it fair to say that that what we know as our self-sense when we condense and contract from the unity, I'm, I'm using my language in here, please correct me if I'm wrong, from the unity uh, of that formless light back into a reified form in the worlds that, that arises from that contraction, that, that that's a process of dissociation that on one level, we, we again, again, the narrative of openness, when we completely open die to reality, it reveals itself in this undifferentiated, ineffable unity of, of light. And that when we con- condense, reincarnate back into form, the minute we do that, the world appears as self another, and we simply lose memory. We lose the recollection of this, this fundamental um, expression of the beloved as, as this body of, of infinite lumin- luminosity and emptiness. I think there is a, a sad way of doing that, and then there's a happy way of doing that. Or so maybe there's a pathological way, uh-huh. but then there's an entirely healthy way. And imagine it this way. I mean, let's use God language temporarily, okay. just because it's kind of handy. Uh, if if we were to become one with God uh, for a, an hour, and if God is the essence and totality of all life forms, then we would be becoming one with all life forms. Mm. And, and just imagine the nearby life forms in your neighborhood that that would involve becoming one with. All the beetles and ants and grasses and seeds and cockroaches. I mean, all the human beings and all their manifest forms. There's so many layers and layers and layers and layers of life. So when we say about, well, we're becoming one with God, we don't really mean, oh, my God, we became one with the billions and billions of ants that are you know, right in my neighborhood. But in fact, if God is one, if all life is one in God, then that's what it involves. So what happens, I think, is that we do become one with one. We, we kind of reconnect to the one. But the happy way is that when we come back, I don't come back into being an ant. I don't come back into being a toad or a bird. I come back into being Chris, a human being. And there is a happy and healthy way in which I come back into this individual life form, which recognizes that its essence is the same as the essence of those ants and birds and toads. No better, no different. It's more complicated, but the essence is the same. There is that profound kinship with all of existence. I happen to be a human bubble. They are other kinds of bubbles. Together, we make up the unified existence of the totality, less sing and celebration, we work together. We didn't choose it. We didn't create it. We are awakening up within it. It is the design of a deeper intelligence, a deeper organization that's that's manifesting itself in joyful diversity. We, we, we can enjoy the diversity. We can acknowledge it and be comfortable within it. And I don't think there's anything pathological about it. In fact, there's an ecstatic joy in celebrating being a human being in the, in the, now, if we exalt our humanness at the expense of other life forms and we're willing for them to go extinct in order to allow us to buy a bigger, you know, 
bigger and better and whatnot. Of course, there's a steep, deep pathology there. But when it's truly liberated, our, our individuality is recognized as a gift, just an extraordinary gift and a responsibility. We have to handle that responsibility in order to protect the well-being of all the life forms that we are part of that, that are around us. Then the deep, the sense of our common ground, the sense of the common ground out of which all life emerges, I think deepens and deepens and deepens. Uh, and so I don't really, this is again, sort of eco-psychology and eco-spirituality. We can't really awaken as a, as a separate self without simultaneously awakening as an earth self, an earth being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And, and talk about applicability. Sometimes it's easy to think that these are kind of elite treasured, sterile ivory tower spiritual experiences, but really these, there's nothing more practical, Very more applicable practical. This, this is the farthest from being philosophy. This is the most radical transformation in view from which activism, whatever you want to call it, um, enlightened activity, extraordinarily practical, applicable behaviors and actions arise spontaneously from this. And, and I think this also cannot be overstated because to me, my big bug these days, if if, if what we're discussing here is can't be of a benefit to what's happening in the world, it's irrelevant. And yeah. this is far from irrelevant. This is this is absolutely foundational for this is right view. It is it is ultimate it is. basis. That it's right view. From this from this foundation, spontaneously, without thought, arises the activity that is is uh, appropriate for this day and age. And so. Chris, as we, um, well, <laughs> let me ask you this. When I, when I hear you, you talking about these experiences, these are, these are types of samadhi states. You're, you're entering into particular absorption states. Like when you're bathing in the light, you, you become the light. That's a type of, that's a luminous samadhi. Why does it end? Why, why, why does post-meditation, post-session still take place? Why, why not uh, abide in that light eternally? Um, what, brings, what's, what brings you back? And it seems on a level it's involuntary, right? So in a certain way, we're talking about rebirth processes. Mm-hmm. What is a rebirth process involuntary due to the unpurified habitual patterns that still bring us back because of their karmic power? Why, why does the samadhi end? Yeah. Well, once again, there are some beings for whom their samadhi does not end, but even those beings experience a a movement in and out, you know, they, 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 they live at different levels at different seconds of every hour. Uh, I would say my samadhi ends because uh, I'm not. I'm a being who cannot sustain those levels of purity or those levels of clarity uh, in my current condition. So the habits of consciousness reassert themselves. The habits of uh, my embodiment reassert themselves, and I once again am kind of looking at the world through 
the levels of awareness that I can manage in my embodied existence. But in a sense, there is a, again, we spirit is the goal spiritual awakening or is the goal cosmological exploration? If the goal is spiritual awakening, then there is a way in which we can realistically aim to enter into a kind of samadhi, which is abiding and uh, allows us to live with a profound sense of freedom within the context of life. If the, if the experiential trajectory is cosmological exploration, then the burden of that, at least as in this path that I practice, and I'm just, let's just stay there and not talk about the comparative other paths. The burden of that discovery is that it's temporary. The burden is that it's a samadhi state, or maybe even samadhi is not the right word for it, yeah. but the, yeah. you know, to go beyond, to experience the future, to experience the future of humanity in a realistic graphic sense, to experience the purpose of time-space existence and a profound expansion of time that allows you to span millions and millions of years of history and understand and absorb it and to, to take it in. I mean, I don't, how could one possibly live in that condition yeah. and have breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> really? So that's just, you know, if you want to understand those things, here's a way of doing it, but then you have to, you have to come back and now you have to live in, my 72-year-old self, and I have to cut the grass, and I have to do my things. Uh, and that's okay, because if, if you do it well, there is a happy way of coming back yeah. and integrating and recognizing the limits of what you experienced. It's a temporary condition, no big deal, not to make too much of it, learning more as I go, you know, just... So there's a there's a healthy way, and then there are all sorts of unhealthy ways of doing it. But hopefully, healthy way it is there is an abiding calm and trust, an yes. abiding trust in the wisdom of the universe, in its self-emergent glory. Yeah, would it be fair to say, Chris? Therefore, that. I mean, I, I I hear rebirth, reincarnation. We're, we're basically talking about this fundamental process. Is it fair to say that rebirth really takes place in two dimensions of experience, the degree of openness we can tolerate? Um, in other words, what what there thereby can bring the end of, and this is an important term for me, that differentiates my understanding of Buddhism from other traditions, what ends the process of involuntary rebirth is in fact the ability to, coming back to this central narrative of openness, to open, 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 open to such a degree we're so familiar with it, we're so comfortable with it, that fundamentally when that state is revealed at the moment of death, we uh, we abide in and as that fundamental openness. And then when we do return, as you know, we do so out of love and manifestation of compassion of tuku phenomena voluntarily 
embodying our wisdom, not involuntarily embodying our confusion. And at that point, it's not that rebirth ends, involuntary rebirth ends. And it's like you said, then the play, Lilo Rolpa, continues infinitely um, out of love yeah. and compassion in the service of others. Is that a fair way to share or express your understanding of, of this? Again, where I'm, I'm trying to, to dance around um, the yeah. dissolution of the Omega point, right? That this is the final goal, but on one level, yeah. On one level, it is a, a, the final goal for self, the, the cessation of that self, but then it's just the beginning of this endless voluntary display of wisdom and yeah. compassion. I think it's a very fair description. I think what ends is the involuntary nature of reincarnation, and we transition into voluntary incarnation. Yeah. And with that comes, I mean, and I think we, our future incarnations are not the same as our past incarnations mm -hmm. in this respect. And the way I've languaged this, the way it was shown me in the sessions is that long-term or short-term, I mean, long-term, however it manifests itself intermittently, um, I think in the end, we all become tulkus. Uh, we all become voluntarily incarnate. The when the entire planet is populated by self-consciously incarnated beings, humanity will have transitioned to a, a new level of its evolutionary trajectory. And the way this was presented to me in the sessions was the re the birth of the diamond soul. So mm -hmm. all my former lives at one point started coming into me, coming into me. And when they hit, they hit a critical mass and they fused into one. And when they fused into one, this diamond light blew out of my chest and catapulted me into a, a deep, deep, deep state of consciousness that was individualized. It was individual consciousness, but it was individuality actualized in a way that I had no previous experience of. And I think that that's where humanity is going. All of us are incarnating every generation, billions and billions of people are incarnating, incarnating over and over again, over and over again, sooner or later, the entire species not only becomes awakened, but the entire species gives birth to this deeper spiritual awareness, which has been gestating inside it all of this time, all these hundreds and hundreds and thousands of lifetimes, until we awaken into our deeper awareness, which is not just the awareness of enlightenment, the awareness of awakening, but it's the awareness of our history. It's the awareness of our relationship to the universe. It's a deeper intimacy with the intelligence of the universe, a deeper intimacy with all life forms on this planet. This is when soul consciousness, and I don't mean soul in an anti-Buddhist way, mm -hmm. but in a way that's compatible with shunyata, emptiness, yes, yes. but soul consciousness awakens so that we awaken to the being that we are mm -hmm. in the community of beings as they are on a planet at this particular stage of its evolutionary development with billions of years ahead of us. And so I, I think we're just beginning to see the edges. When we first encountered enlightenment 5,000 years ago, we called it um, escape, moksha, 
we escape samsara. Right. We want to get out of here. But now we're beginning to understand that we want to awaken here. And in the awakening here, we humanity makes a pivot into a new stage of the evolutionary story. And a not, not just an, a larger stage, but a more peaceful stage, peaceful of heart, nonviolent, more compassionate, more insightful, more creative. That's the kind of planet that I think we're giving birth to right now. And all of our individual spiritual aspirations and, and purification aspirations and healing aspirations and justice aspirations, all of this are all organically part of this deeper story. And the deeper story is that humanity is coming to a point where it no longer has the liberty of living at the lower level of maturity that it's lived at in the past. We cannot afford, we can't run a planet run by egos. We have to grow up. And when we grow up, we grow up into this higher form of spiritual awareness that the spiritual teachers have been telling us about for thousands of years. But this begins a turning point in human history. That's what we're trying to give birth to, what I call the future human. People give all sorts of different names to it. We can all feel it in our bones. It's Maitreya. It's that higher level of realization that is working its way to us. You know, that's really, really exquisite. And I'm wondering um, if, again, I understand the languaging, but I'm wondering if um, growing down might be a more appropriate mm -hmm. embodied aspect because the growing up is, yeah. again, fundamentally moksha escapist, FedEx my consciousness to a pure land when it's really <laughs> yeah. waking down into yeah. the majesty. Somewhat nice way to yeah. start to close things up yeah. with the integration of your work, the waking down, bringing, metabolizing, digesting, incorporating, literally incorporating, bringing into soma body yeah. This this vast realization. But Chris, if, if you don't mind me being mm -hmm. slight devil's advocate here, that's just mm -hmm. for my stance. Sure. I, I've become very interested, fascinated for some decades with um, uh, development, structural development, not just not just spiritual. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and this is where I like integral approaches. And so I, 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 I take utter complete delight in this vision and make aspirations that may it be so that, that we can all become tukus. Um, but I'm also wondering, again, wishful thinking. Uh, you talk in your book about these evolutionary breakthroughs. Um, when I look at the world and I, I, I see what's happening and we can't even agree as as a as a society to wear a mask for the benefit of each other. Yeah. Why why should there be at this point something special that would occur, like a meteor hitting this earth of sanity, wisdom, and insight that would shake us from our collective slumber and bring us to this collective evolution and awareness? It doesn't seem to work that way. E evolution stumbles and trips along these very painful, laborious, mm -hmm. long stretches of time. I, I revel in what you're saying, but I'm less optimistic than I used to be, that I look at this world and, and I put my finger up to the winds that are blowing and it doesn't, it's not blowing in the right direction. Yeah. Things so, seem to be getting worse. They seem to be so getting worse. 
Right. So I'm curious, outside of, of your experience, and that that's ultimate refuge for you, what else outside of that, if there is anything else, gives you the conviction to say that, that we're heading towards this evolutionary breakthrough as a species? Um, can can I, the big question these days, will we do it in time? I personally am not so sure. I try to retain my optimism, yeah. but it's conjecture on my part. So I'm curious how that, that challenge slash rub lands with you. The development doesn't seem to work this way. Yeah. Outside of my visionary experience, I have nothing to say. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, you know, we all look at the data. We all see what's going on. We see the stupidity and insanity around us. We see a growing eco-crisis, series of eco-crises. We anticipate the desertification of the middle America. We see famine on the horizons already started, but penetrating into middle-class experience slowly. We see the, we're told that the oceans, a 12 foot rise is already baked into the, into reality, uh, unstoppable by 2050, 12 feet by 2050, where we can calculate how many billions of people will be flooded out of where they live and where, I mean, we know we're coming into extremely difficult times. We see the forces of conservatism. We see the reactionary regressive forces that are manifesting in politics internationally. We see higher concentrations of wealth into smaller and smaller numbers of people. Uh, we see very, very dangerous and forbidding trends. And, and so outside of my visionary experience, I have no uh, certainty or surety that this is going someplace good. Mm. So the nature of my experience is if there, and if there is any, well, the nature of my experience is that starting about around 1992, 93, I started having these consistent visions coming in completely by surprise, just as I had not anticipated that one could possibly do any type of therapeutic work and healing some aspect of the collective psyche. I had no idea that it was even possible to consider having insights into humanity's evolutionary trajectory. But now, once I lived with this for years, I began to understand that this is a natural thing. Just as we have, as we go deeper within our personal life, we have a deeper understanding and experience of our trajectory of our personal life. One can go deep if one lives in service of the collective. One can have a deeper and penetrating understanding of the collective trajectory. And in that context, my experience has been consistent over years and years and years of psychedelic experience and visionary experience. First, many years of basically saying humanity is coming to a turning point. We're coming to a before and after. We're coming into a, a, to a dawn of something fantastic. We're coming to a genuine spiritual awakening that everything that he, our spiritual traditions have been describing for the individual, guess what? It's not an individual thing. It's a collective thing. This is a collective dynamic. The forces of the collective unconscious are activated, not just my personal unconscious. And then at that critical time in 1995, when I had the 55th session and it, and it 
when I was expecting to be taken back into the diamond luminosity, it dissolved me into the collective psyche, it dissolved me into the collective unconscious, took me into deep time, into an expanded sense of time. And in that state, I experienced the death and rebirth of humanity. I experienced a global systems crisis that led to billions of people, billions of people dying, just a total unraveling of culture as we have known it, of civilization as we've known it, a complete... I, I experienced our entire species losing control of its story, losing control of its life on this planet, just being put under enormous, terribly crushing pressure of death and destruction. And it looked for a time, it felt for a time as if this was an extinction event, that we were really going extinct as a species. But the, And I was given no details. I wasn't given a timeline. I wasn't given anything. I was given the experience of the species going through a death event on this planet, all of us together. And then I experienced that the storm began to pass. The storm began to subside. And those of us who were still alive picked themselves up and began to rebuild. And what we were was different than what we had been before. And what, we be what began to happen was a synergistic of conscious creativity, a synergistic of compounded freedom, a synergy of compounding insight, a, a new set of values, a new set of understandings, a new set of capacities were manifesting themselves that humanity as a whole was going through a process that every spiritual aspirant has had knowledge of, a complete collapse of reality as they had known it, and a waking up into a more spiritually animated, whole, magnificent, beautiful, conscious awareness that humanity was going through this process. And then in the very, in my 70th session, the very, very last session, once again, it gave me kind of a, a capstone experience where it, where it took me deep into the future and it showed me the archetypal structure of this future human, the archetypal form of it. And truly, I mean, it, it brings tears to my eyes just to even remember it, to think of it. That this, is a, this is a truly different form of humanity. It's like the best of the best of us in it. Our hearts healed, our minds opened. Outside of my visionary experience, I have no reason for suggesting what I have suggested as that humanity is coming to this turning point, this evolutionary pivot point. I know that evolution has dead ends and, and you know, whole species die off and whole planets could die off. And I know that there's no cognitively compelling reason for having hope. And as we enter the next century, as we enter what's going to happen in this century, we are going to lose hope again and again. And that's why I think it's really important to have a vision, an understanding of what's taking place at a deeper level, because it's going to get bad. I mean, really, realistically, we could be looking at more than half of the human population of Earth lost. Mm -hmm. 
and we'll watch it on television every night. And it's just, it's going to rack us with terrible pain. But inside, we're going to be led to do things that we would not otherwise do. We're going to be, we're going to be cracked open in this pain and suffering, just as in a meditation, deep meditation, just as in deep psychedelic experience. We will reach deeper into ourselves than we have ever reached before. And we will accomplish something that we might never accomplish without this ordeal of pain. Now, the other thing that I was shown in the 55th session was some of the mechanism responsible for doing this. That was, and I was shown this over and over and over again, taken through it, and it, until I'm, it was made sure I understood it. And I'll just mention it here and point to the book. And that is, it has to do with uh, the functioning of the collective psyche. And in this time of accelerated and intensified individual suffering. It's not just our individual psyches that are be activated, but all of the suffering of humanity gathers in its process at a centralized level as more as um, morphogenic feel uh, Sheldrake has helped us understand. And so that the scenario that was unfolded was the collective psyche will move into such a highly energized state that it will begin to operate as a nonlinear system, our far mm. from equilibrium system. Mm. And we know something about how physical systems operate when they enter into nonlinear conditions. They are capable of accelerated change. Small perturbations ex produce expanded outcomes. Uh, creativity emerges from within the system in unprecedented way, hydrogen and oxygen combined to produce oxygen, I mean, to produce water. Uh, things happen that are unanticipatable according to a system operating in linear systems. And this was showing me that this future is going to take place. This pivot is going to take place much faster than we could ever imagine if we used our calculation based upon the past. It's going to take place faster, more quickly. It's going to be deeper than anything that we could imagine in the past. Now, I, I know that sounds like optimism run amok, and I understand it. Everybody has to make their own decisions on this. All I can do is simply here report the vision and let it go at that. And then we're all in this together. You and I and our children and grandchildren, we're all in this together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Part of me um, says, may it be so, and another part of me says, may it not be so. Mm. Mm. But I'm wondering, Chris, as we start to, to um, wrap up, I know your time is valuable. We've covered so much amazing material, really, and um, prescriptions. What, what, I'm a level, some, some things are implied with uh, our time together. But um, mm. uh, prescriptions, what what to do or in a certain sense not to do, how to bring mm. our individual empowered selves or lack thereof to to actually help this world both now and, and um, you know for our ancestors. So yeah. some let's let's end on some prescription notes okay. if, if we might. In terms of the transition that I've been describing, 
someone that I know and love and respect very dearly, uh, who has thought a great deal about what we can do, how we can accelerate this process, how we can uh, remove the worst of the pain and move into uh, the this new future better, quicker, is Dwayne Elgin. And his book, Choosing Earth, is a beautiful book, powerful book, small book. He lays out what he thinks the next five decades are going to look like. And it's not a pretty picture. It's, it's a frightening picture. But he also lays out a series of prescriptions of prescriptions for how we can engage this future, how we can bring about a safe landing, how we can change and engage uh, socially, individually and socially. And I, I think he... His advice is worth much more than mine. Dwayne Elgin, Choosing Earth. And he's giving the book away. You can get a PDF on Amazon. It's giving, he's giving it away because it's so important. Uh, he's not trying to hold on or make money on it himself. He's, it's all in service of humanity. I would step also add to that a reminder that from a reincarnational perspective, each one of us, Every one of the thousands and thousands of listeners in your program and all of us around the world, we chose to be incarnated at this time in history. We chose to be incarnated at the time and place that we incarnated with the talents and challenges that we brought into this incarnation. We are exactly where we are supposed to be in order to make a creative offering to this time in history. We don't have to go look elsewhere. The only real question is, do we have the courage to actualize, to activate the potential that we are standing on right here, right now? Once we make that commitment that our life, my life will count towards the good, then we look around us and we say, okay, what needs to happen? What, what are we trying to become? And then we put our hands to work. And since we're all different and we all have different missions and different agendas, some of us are in the medical field, some of us in the political field and philosophical field and creative field and hard labor, all these things, every human talent will be required to bring this about. So it's not a matter of kind of looking elsewhere. It's simply a matter of looking at where one is already incarnated to make service. Spiritual practice is important. Facing the shadow, clarifying the shadow, becoming open and individually receptive. Community is important. Not only practice community, but social community. Uh, learning how to do more with less. Sharing, restructuring society. Political community is really important. We see what happens when ego runs amok in our politics. All of these things are needed. All of these things are important. Uh, all we have to do is look around and see what needs to be done and give ourselves to it completely. Wow. Wonderful. Wow. Um, Anything that um, <clears throat> you wish I would have asked? <laughs> any, any? Ooh, I don't know. Yeah. You covered some serious territory, partner. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, rich. But as we really yeah. wrap up, um, I mean, there's yeah. so many summary statements here. But yeah. any, any other final thoughts or questions you felt should have been directed your way? No, you know, you mentioned the living classroom in the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
and it's not it's too late to go into a large excursus but the basic the core of that book which doesn't mention psychedelics mm-hmm. is the core truth that's manifesting there is that consciousness is unified from the start so that everything we do in our individual sphere our individual field radiates out around us 360 degrees it all of our spiritual practice all of our actions everything we do radiates around it touches and interacts with the consciousness of the beings around us knowing this then we take more responsibility for making sure we're sending out you know a positive experience in the world you know beneficial experience uh, and we are never ever ever isolated from those around us we it may be invisible it may be subtle you know but it's always there and the more we act on that basis the more we activate the strength of those sinews that uh, bind us to life and if this is true of course not just for human beings other human beings it's true for all the life forms that surround us and that that's the core teaching of the living classroom that there's an atomistic quality to teaching and then there's a quantum quality to teaching yeah. so like you and i have been having kind of a in some ways an atomistic conversation mm-hmm. but we can trust that there's a quantum a quantum quality field, field to our effect. conversation yeah yeah field effect that that is that yeah. extends beyond yeah. Our our limited self sense, which is illusory in, in in nature, and and we have these. I think it's a wonderful way to end because really, it invites us to really discover that we have so much more power than we think in in yeah. both negative and positive ways, and and the the thoughts that we hold, the aspirations, the motivations. It's not just encapsulated in this little ball of skin. Yeah. It it just it's a pebble. Yeah. radiating out throughout the cosmos not just this world and and i think really understanding yeah. that will empower our, our ways to benefit the world so chris yes I, I i can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us i it's really quite remarkable i'm thrilled to have spent this time with you i've learned so much i applaud your bravery your your heart um your capacities in doing this it's it's marvelous and it, it's really being a great benefit so um, thank you for the conversation, Andrew. Uh, thank you for your work bringing this conversation and many similar conversations into the world. Conversations change lives. Thank so. you for what you do, and just thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about these things together. It's been yeah, a it's been a delight for me too. And like we talked briefly last time, this this I haven't really thought of it before. The dialogue, the conversation, the sharing is is actually a quality of path itself is new for me, and I hadn't really thought of it that way. So it's, it's yeah. a wonderful insight of many that you shared. So um, thank you so much for everything. Well, let's do it again with the next book that comes out. <laughs> oh, oh no, help me! <laughs> but I'm always happy to have a conversation with you. Yeah, really, yeah, it's such a delight, Chris. Um, Till next time, thank you so much for your Good time. Good heart, love, love and blessings. Love and blessings. Thank you. Bye bye.